Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, it's Max. We are um, off this week, so we are uh, putting an old episode back through the feed. It's actually not that old. It's only from April. It's a conversation I had with David Gran about his new book, which is called The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. It was the fourth time David has been on the show. Just as an aside, I got to say, one of the great perks of having done the podcast for as long as we have is that you get to have that many conversations with someone. It feels like uh, not like four totally distinct conversations, but kind of like one really long conversation. Anyway, I love talking to David. I love talking to him about this work that he does. And when we talked, the wager wasn't out yet. It was coming out in a couple of days at the time. And since then, it has spent, not surprisingly, 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's currently at number two. And so while we were thinking about which episode to put back through the feed this week, we figured maybe some of you, maybe many of you, have read The Wager since David and I talked back in April. So here is my conversation with David Gran, and uh, we'll be back with a brand new episode next week. Thanks for listening. Hey, David Gran, welcome back to the show. So good to be here. Four times. Four times. I was sure you'd be sick of me by now. Never. You've got a lifetime pass, man. After what you endured <laughs> with the first interview I ever did for the show, I feel like the least I could do is talk to you every time you got something new out. Oh, it's so nice. I always say we mark time by our conversations. I know. I, 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 will, uh, I will never be able to fully convey to you how completely nervous I was for that first interview. Well, that's good because I get completely nervous for every interview, so that's good. <laughs> well, I'm, nervous. I'm nervous now. I've been do- I've been doing this for a while, and we're number four, and I still get nervous. Well, I'm nervous now too, but that was a different <laughs> level of nerves, man. I was like barely able to uh, muster the courage to walk into that room with my one microphone. We've moved technologically speaking. We're in higher echelons now. You've surpassed me. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. We moved to two microphones. That's really the yes. uh, the big advancement. <laughs> Well, man, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I listened back to um, our last conversation, which was in 2019, 
and it gave me a couple of things I wanted to start with. One of them is, do you want to just talk about the NBA the whole time? I do. I was going to say, when we spoke last time, my dream was to, I've still failed to get my NBA podcast going. That is still my secret dream. How has that not happened? What are, <laughs> I don't know. What are those I guys know. at the <laughs> ringer doing? I told them, get <laughs> Grant a podcast. My, my dream is just to talk Knicks 24 hours a day. <laughs> I feel like we should have talked a couple of months ago. You would have been feeling a lot better about him. Yes. Well, I'm feeling okay. I'm feeling okay. We're going to the playoffs. That's a lot of confidence for a Knicks fan. Yeah, it is a lot. That's, and that's about as high as it goes. <laughs> Feel okay. Feel okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do a uh, we'll do a bonus episode where we let you live out your dream of, of doing an NBA podcast. But unfortunately, I'm going to talk to you about both writing and your feelings. Okay. The writing's okay. Well, I'm not so sure about the feelings part. <laughs> well, I'm, not, I'm being guarded. <laughs> I folded my arms. <laughs> yeah, you're very you're very closed off this time. <laughs> I'm very closed off. I like to report. I don't like to question. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm going to somehow pry your arms open. Okay. Because I have a totally lighthearted first question, real easy. Last time we ended by talking about this belief that you have that there is a perfect way to tell every story and that the goal the quest is to chisel down and find that perfect story like it exists the immaculate telling of every story exists and your job is simply to find it and i wonder with the wager if you found it perfection is way too elusive <laughs> the quest is to achieve perfection but last time we also i think spoke about the squid hunter and mm -hmm. the search for the giant squid. And I sometimes think the quest of writing is like that giant squid hunter who is searching for the live giant squid and he almost captures it, but it slips through his hands. And I think that's like writing. You try each time you aim for perfection and then you accept, you know, some of the blemishes and then you, you set off again. But I will say this about the wager. It is one of the more interesting sagas I think I've come across. And I do think the structure for this book, which was very important, organically works for telling the story and the themes that the story has. And that is the structure for this book, which for your listeners is about a British naval warship called the Wager, which ends it's chasing a Spanish galleon filled with treasure known as the prize of all the ocean. It ends up getting wrecked on this desolate island where the castaways slowly descend into this real-life Lord of the Flies. And there's murder and mutiny and cannibalism. You, pretty much you name it, um, they do to each other. But the thing that really drew me to the story was several of the castaways end up making it back to England and these kind of unbelievable castaway voyages that last months. And one of them travels nearly 3,000 miles. And when they get back to England, they have now survived scurvy epidemic, typhoons, tidal waves, the chaos and violence on the island. And suddenly they're summoned to face a court martial for their alleged crimes on the island. And they, after everything they've been through, they could be hanged. And so hoping to save their lives, they release and publish their testimony, and their narratives. And this provokes this furious war over the truth. And so I would like go to these British naval archives and or get documents from them and review them. And then I'd come home and I'd 
turn on the news and I'd be hearing about like alternative facts and fake news. I was like, oh God, this is so weird. I'm in the 18th century and like it's completely resonates with this world. There was even like back in the 18th century, there was allegations of fake journals, like an 18th century version of allegations of fake news. And then of course, there's this great battle over who would get to tell the story and effort by those in power to cover up. So I felt like this weird story was this parable for our time. And I had swore to myself, I wouldn't tell anything too far back in history. And somehow I ended up in the 18th century. <laughs> but all that is to be said to the structure, because there was this war over the truth, I decided to tell the story from the point of view of three different people who were members of the ship. And so you get to see how they are each shading their stories, manipulating their stories. And by hopefully alternating between each perspective, you see how we tell stories, how we shade our stories, how we all try to emerge as the heroes of our stories. So I was happy with the structure. <laughs> I feel like for you, that's pretty close to like, I found yeah, it. That is, for me, yes, I am a total half glass empty. Yes, yeah. as my wife will attest. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a chronic pessimist. So yes, I'll take that as a win. <laughs> that's the most confident thing I've ever heard you say. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is true. <laughs> <laughs> I do think like, I don't think there was another structure. I think that structure really work because I'll just give you like a really glaring example that yeah. just struck me. So, you know, it's told from the point of view of three people. There's from the captain of the wager, a guy named David Sheep. You know, he was a guy who was like always harried on shore. Life was always going wrong on shore. He was had financial debts. He's chased by creditors. But on this voyage, he finally gets promoted to be captain. He finally achieves what he had always dreamed of, to captain his own ship and to hopefully capture a lucrative prize. And then the other perspective is told from a guy named John Bulkley, who was the gunner of the wager. And he was probably the most skilled seaman on the ship and also an instinctive leader, yet because he didn't come from the aristocracy, he knew he would never become captain of a ship. And then the third perspective is from John Byron, who was only 16 years old when the voyage set sail. Every time you mention his age, I was floored. Like, yeah. when you're reading yeah. the book, you're just so deep in. It's like, this is a kid. He's just a kid. Oh. And he really, he's just a kid. And in many ways, he's our eyes and ears on this kind of bewildering world. He was kind of filled with romance. I'm, I'm very interested in not only the way we tell stories, but how stories influence and shape us. And so he was somebody who had read all these tales of sea narratives and had all these romantic visions of a life at sea. Like he was basically going to live and write his own romance. And of course, he goes on this voyage and like, everything goes wrong. And like, he not only has to come of age, you know, amid the horrors of the elements, because the elements were ferocious, but then he also has to deal with the horrors unleashed by his own fellow seamen on the island. And of course, he, in a weird twist of history, I'm always like, history always has such weird twists that never ceased to take my breath away. And one of them, where you're like, I can't believe this is true. He went on to become the grandfather of the poet, Lord Byron. Right. And so Lord Byron's poetry is greatly influenced by what he referred to as my great granddad's narrative. He has a line, if I can remember, he wrote a, something in a line to his sister where he said, essentially, like, my fate was reversed from our grandsire's fate of yore. He had no rest at sea, nor I on shore. I just love that. I love that line. So, but in any case, you get to see these competing narratives, each person with their own kind of secret image of themselves trying to live up to it. But in one of the accounts on the island, you'll hear an officer say, well, 
I was forced to proceed to extremities. Hmm. And that's where he ends it. He just says, forced to proceed to extremities. So you're like, huh, that's really curious. What could that mean? Well, then you go look at the other account by John Byron. He says, he shot him right in the head. <laughs> he shot a guy. <laughs> he shot a guy right in the, not just shot him, shot him in the head with no questions. That was the force to proceed to extremities. I shouldn't laugh, but it's just, it, it's just more, you see how, again, we shape stories to live with the things we have done or or haven't done. And, and it's just a, such a, vivid exercise and example and demonstration of this in this weird 18th century story. When we talked last time you were working on this and you told me you were stuck. In fact, you told me you were stuck in a way that you had never been stuck before. Can you tell me now what that was since you couldn't really talk about the project then? And then do you have any sense of how you got unstuck? You know what's so great is I've erased all that pain from <laughs> <laughs> None of that ever happened. Yeah, none of that ever happened. You, then you have to, that's the problem with these conversations. Then you bring it back on me and now I'll have post-traumatic syndrome of getting the problem. You know, Max, I, the way that I achieved perfection, I, it was just an easy ride. It was just yeah. smooth sailing. No, I, I, yeah, I, you know, I think the, the challenge for me, I can tell you, the challenge for me is, you know, I was really interested in these themes that were happening in our world at that time. You couldn't help me. I mean, it was like collapsing civil society, insurrections, uh, wars on truth. And I somehow was looking for a way to tell that. And I somehow ended up in the 18th century with this weird kind of gripping story that I thought kind of spoke to the moment. And the challenge for me was to, I mean, okay, I'm, I mean, what do I know about the 18th century? <laughs> What's it like on an 18th century ship? I mean, we're going so far back and into a different world. And so for the first year, and probably when we spoke, you know, I spent the first year trying to figure out how to kind of read these archaic texts mm. so I could bring them to life. You know, the the language has Fs for Ss. I had to learn a whole new nautical language. You know, even if I wasn't going to use it and belabor the reader with it, I needed to be have a have a felicity with the language so that I could understand it and then convey it in a natural way. So when I first started pulling the records, I pulled the muster books. And the muster books are essentially, they're like, when you arrive on a ship, they record the date you enter, they record your rank. And then they have a couple other little details. And one of the details it has is there are sometimes, there's little initials next to your name in a column. And I was like, I couldn't figure out what these initials were. They would say, DD. I was like, what does DD mean? And then I learned that DD means discharged dead. At first, I didn't think these muster books told me anything. I was like, oh, this is just a waste of time, this muster book, other than giving me the names of the people on the ship. But then I started looking at that little column with those little abbreviated recordings. And I started to see DD, DD, DD. And I began to write down and I started to do tallies of all the seamen on the different ships in the expedition, DD, DD. And you start to realize this kind of ship that's like burnished in myth and legend, this expedition. And yet you begin to get in these weird little books that are crumbling and disintegrating evidence of the true toll of what this voyage was. Nearly 2,000 people went on the expedition and more than 1,300 of them died. And so 
that was like the challenge. I probably first booked you when I saw a muster book and was like, ah, what does this muster book even say? Right. How am I going to decode this? And so I spent so much time with uh, British historians getting these tutorials. I'm sure when they saw the call come in, they would be like, oh, God, it's Gran again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, I'm looking at this dusty document. It's a logbook and it's on the ship. And like, you know, what does this mean? And um, But they were very patient and very sweet. So it took me a year of research until I felt like I understood the language that I was now going to have to research and write about. So that was probably when I spoke to you. I was bewildered because everything on the ship had a different name. <laughs> You mean like every every uh, part of the ship had a different yeah, name? Yeah, than... every part of the ship had a different name. Like, and and so what's great is you get to see it through Byron's eyes because Byron is training to become an officer, and one of the things he has to do is just like I had to do, learn the language on a ship, which is completely it's almost coded, it's almost like a secret language, and you're almost being initiated into it. And if you screw it up, if you mess up the words, you're like dismissed as a landlubber, which was like the worst insult you could get. And so you know, even objects which would have have a similar name on shore would have a different name on the ship. Like, you know, you wouldn't call a privy, you call it a head. But what was really interesting to me and why I do love history is I don't know anything about these stories when I begin. And as I was doing the research for the secret coded language, I started to realize that like half the language I speak came from the age of sail. It was incredible. I mean, <laughs> I also know nothing about ships, boats, any of that stuff. And I was so surprised and quite like tickled by how many things are in our like daily lexicon that come from came these from naval these, expeditions. Came from these, they came from these old ships, these old warships, you know, scuttlebutt. It was a barrel filled with water in the middle of the ship where the seamen would line up for the rations, but they would gossip around it. Yeah. So we used the word scuttlebutt for gossip. Piping hot. That was the bosun's whistle. When the bosun whistled for piping hot, that meant food was ready. Pipe down, be quiet at night. Under the weather? Oh my God, under the weather, that's one of my favorite. So I was just like, under the weather, well, it just always sounded like, well, you're kind of sick under the weather. Well, what is under the weather? Under the weather, it turns out to mean quite literally under the weather. When you were sick on a ship, you did not have to serve on watch, which was you were above deck and you were exposed to the weather. So you were kept below. You were quite literally under the weather. That's where that phrase comes from. I mean, it just goes on and on. My favorite of the phrases was the one from Vice Admiral uh, Nelson, you know, the famous admiral who uh, won the Battle of Trafalgar, and uh, which is to turn a blind eye. He wanted to ignore... Uh, a superior officer's signal flag to retreat. And so he took his he took his telescope and he put it up to his blind eye. So when we say to turn a blind eye, that's where that came from. So on and on it goes. We could keep going, but it's but but to me what's interesting about that, in and why, you know, these fights over whether we should know history and, and learn about history, history is there whether we you know, it's always there. Hmm. It's it's always undergirding us and it's always flowing in some way. And, it, you know, if you try to suppress it, it pops out in other ways or, it, you know, you're ignorant of it. But it, it's always shaping you and affecting you, which is why these fights over history today are, are so upsetting, where people don't want to reckon with the past. And, of course, that happened even with this story. I mean, this was a story that the British Empire decided they did not really like this story. It was a story that the British Empire wanted to go away. And one of the experiences I had reading it was like, how did I not know this? How is this not like a thing that, you know, everyone's talking about, you know? Yeah. It's such an epic story. And it did make me wonder, like, how you had found it and then what your experience uh, of it was, like, 
trying to do the math around whether this was going to be a five-year investment of your life. You know, like, how do you make that call that this is the one? Yeah, that's always the most terrifying call because, and we've spoken about this in the past, you know, if you're, if you're a novelist, you know, you can make things up, you can improve things, you can, you know, you can rejigger things and, and spice them up. But when you're a nonfiction writer, you, you know, you're, you're not an inventor, you're an excavator. So if it's not there, there's nothing, if, if, you, if you excavate it and it's, it's just a, a mess, there's not much you can do about it. So choosing the right story is so important that I first came across this story. I was, one of my pet obsessions was mutinies. Always been interested in mutinies. And um, why do you think that is? You know, I think it's a very interesting type of revolt and rebellion because it's within a military organization that is an instrument of the state of order. So here is this thing created to impose order. And yet, for various reasons, whatever reasons, some of these enforcers suddenly rebel. They suddenly create disorder. So why is that? Are they extreme outlaws? Or was there something rotten or wrong at the core of the system that justified the rebellion and even imbued it with nobility? And that's why I think mutinies always capture our imagination mm -hmm. and why they're part of films and books and mutiny on the bounty and whatnot. And so I'd always been interested. Then I was poking around in, in, in that thinking, oh, was there, was there ever be a mutiny? And then I came across this 18th century journal by uh, John Byron. It was a digital copy. I found it online. It was in an archive. And I started to read it. And first of all, it was the original, so or an original copy, at least from that century. So it was all washed out, even on the computer. And the letters were faded, and it and it's very convoluted, the prose. I'm like, God, what is this? I'm reading it. But then, you know, you suddenly come across a word like scurvy, and like they're going mad and on the ship. And then you're like, oh, my God, they're battling a typhoon. And then you're suddenly like, oh, my God, the ship is breaking apart their home. The thing, their very fortress is like just disintegrating. And then like they look out and Byron looks out and he sees like through the mist an island. And then they get to the island, some of them. And then like, you know, you think that's going to be their salvation and it only gets worse. So I realized like, oh, okay, this really does have a clue to one of the more extraordinary sagas I had ever come across. But that wouldn't have been enough. That would have made an incredibly gripping story, mm -hmm. a story of survival and adventure, and also revealed something about the human condition. But for me, I still think for a book, you need another layer. And that layer was when they get back to England yeah. and they suddenly, after waging a war against the elements, they have to wage war over the truth. And then there's also a fight over who gets to tell the history, an effort by those in power to cover up the scandalous truth. Then I felt like, okay, this is there. And then I was committed. I mean, then I was like, wow, okay, this, this could work if I could excavate it. And, but to your point too, you mentioned what's so interesting to me is always is how history gets passed down. So, you know, there's this great war over, over the history and one narrative kind of prevails and, the, and it kind of, the empire kind of chooses a version of the tale, an alternative version of history that it prefers and that kind of becomes the, the mythic version of history that's passed down. But in the day, this expedition was a sensation and, you know, the, the court-martial was a scandalous sensation and the testimony and the various competing accounts. And these books became smashing bestsellers in their day. And in many ways, they contained some of the early seeds of literature, of kind of travel literature. And, you know, one of the accounts, I think was the best-selling 
travel book in Europe or in England. I mean, it was this was a huge, you know, a huge deal. And, you know, to the point where like Voltaire and Rousseau are like pouring over these accounts. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, over time, events fade away. And, you know, by the time I was working on it, you know, I never met anyone who had heard of the story. There were a couple of British historians who, who knew about it. But other than that, it had been almost completely forgotten. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you decide to take on a story that happened, I mean, centuries and centuries ago, you are left with, in some ways, a perfect storm if you're going to write about something that happened in the 1740s, which is that there were these competing accounts. There's an incredible amount of documentation. But that's really all there is. And I think if you had asked me what was he stuck on, having read the book, I would have thought, how do you get into the minds of these guys? And how do you get into the like bowels of that ship? I mean, the writing is so vivid in these moments in which giant waves are overtaking them <laughs> or on the island, the towering of Mount Misery. Like you can just see all of this stuff that it was so impossible for you to see. And I think that would have been my guess as to where you were stuck. Not that it was 
linguistic. I, you know, I think that would have been true. I think one of the initial challenges was who are these people and yeah, and how can you fathom their lives? How do you get close to their their lives, their consciousness, their desires, their ambitions, their dreams, their complexities, their vulnerabilities? They're all deeply fallible but interesting humans. There was a a surprising amount of correspondence and journals and then logbooks. Some of these journals and records survived the typhoon. Some went around the world. And a lot of them were daily accounts. So they are daily chronicles of events. So you can begin to piece together. And it does take a while, you know. But eventually, I did actually really felt like I got to know each one of these individuals. And... What's interesting about human nature is that the clothing changes, the speech patterns change, the some of the, you know, the culture may change, but the human nature is still pretty uh, similar in many ways. And so when you begin to get to know them and you begin to see their nature exposed, you can recognize it. And one of the things that also drew me to these stories, and it's true of a lot of the stories I've done, is... I write a lot about people in claustrophobic situations. Hmm. Why do I do that? Because when people are thrown together on expeditions or thrown together on this voyage packed together, it inevitably tests who they are. And almost inevitably, you know, it becomes almost a laboratory that tests the human condition. And inevitably, it reveals their nature, both the good and the bad. And so for me, I felt actually very close with these accounts and the journals. And often it's not always by what they say, by their own deeds and by what they leave out of their accounts and mm-hmm. what they're shading gives you clues to, to who they are. But it is a challenge. I think that's always one of the biggest challenge in any nonfiction. And it could be true even contemporaneously. You know, if you're doing a story, someone's like, how do you understand another person, you know, has this distinct consciousness and a constant inner world and narrative and desires they may not show. How do you get close to that person? How do you learn and observe? And and you try to do it through so many different methods. And the difference when you're doing something in the past is, you know, you don't have the benefit of a phone interview. You really rely on written records. The nice thing is people really kept a lot of written records then, and they kept journals and diaries, which a lot of people don't do anymore today. It would probably be a short text or an email, which would be far less revealing. So you can, you know, you have to approach it in a different way, but it has different demands. And one of the things you end up doing is I spent the first two years just combing archives. And I thought, well, that was how I would tell the book. But then I started to have that gnawing doubt, that that fear that I could never fully understand what it was like for these individuals on the island unless I went there. And so then I decided to you know, make my own trip to to Wager Island, which is like the Squid Hunter story we've spoken about. Probably one of the more foolish things I have I've done. <laughs> well, I want to hear about that trip, but I got one more question about this kind sure. of um, essential nature of truth conversation yes. that you and yes. I have been having for a long time. Yes. One thing you told me last time we talked about your last book was that it felt to you like that was as close to understanding someone's consciousness as you felt you had gotten. Oh, with Henry Worsley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And well, I guess my question is like, does that still feel like the case? Do you feel like you got that close in this situation? 
The advantage with Henry Worsley is I could interview his family members and friends. And so they could really help fill in the portrait. And he kept the daily account. But I did feel like I, in the wager, I got very close to the essence of each of these people. And one of the things that fascinated me about them was they each had their own very distinctive ambitions and dreams. We spoke about Cheap, who's tempestuous and you know, just wants to be a captain. And then, of course, the wreckage happened. He's desperate to hold on to his command. So we can all kind of understand that, right? You, you quest after something, you attain it. But then when he saw his authority diminishing on the island and he saw more and more people gravitating, who were they gravitating towards? They were gravitating toward John Bulkley, the gunner, that instinctive leader who on a ship could have become a captain because he wasn't from the aristocracy. So there, there's a genuine class struggle, even if it's not referred to in those terms, on the island. And of course, Bulkley uses these populist phrases that resonate with us today. He would use words like life and liberty mm-hmm. as the man, as he galvanized the castaways on the island. So you can see his own a kind of will, his, his devotion, and his account really does let you get close to who he is. I think... He was a remarkable writer and an obsessive diarist. I mean, so he his account is so helpful. And John Byron, you know, you, you can feel that boyish romance in his account. It seems to me like you have like a little bit of a soft spot for Byron. Yes, I definitely have a soft spot for Byron. I mean, he, you know, Byron's the one when like when everything's going to hell on the island and there's complete chaos and things are spiraling out of control and everybody is forming into these warring camps. There's, there's one camp, well, there's one group which are referred to by the castaways as the seceders and they just kind of wander around. There's like these marauding forces. There's like this small group of like just out of control marauders. Just getting hammered on this hellscape island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then there are kind of two main factions in the main encampment, one led by the captain and one led by John Bulkley, the gunner. And at a certain point when like these two encampments are getting closer and closer to violence and, uh, you know, they send emissaries back and forth, which I just found hysterical. They have like representatives who would, you know, the encampment was like only, you know, 25 yards yeah, the, the The ways in which they held on to and discarded formality. Yes, it's just right. They had petitions and political <laughs> yeah, petitions. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So at one point, Byron just says, and this is when you have a sauce for Byron. Byron's like, uh, you know what? I'm just gonna kind of build my hut onto the su- away from everybody yeah, and just totally. live alone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna go. I'm just gonna go yeah, over here. I just. I don't, don't want to choose. I don't want to be in the middle. I just want to. I just want to be away from these people. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, do you think that the fact that you encountered the story through his writing is part of that? Like, does where you start have any impact on your connection to the story? You know, I don't think so. I think it is that in many ways he is an innocent and a child viewing these events. And so I think he just becomes an entryway for us as well to see these events through those kind of eyes. But I was equally fascinated by Bulkley and Cheap. And, you know, Cheap is a deeply flawed character and tempestuous and at times violent and insecure, filled with dreams of glory, also very brave, very dutiful. But I could, you know, he was so deeply fallible and human. You know, when you write about people, you're you're not trying to forgive them. You're not trying to absolve them. You're not trying to do anything like that. You're just trying to understand them. Mm-hmm. That's really your mission. Your mission is to understand 
And so you can reveal and show what motivated them, what was driving them, why did they do these things? Often when you understand them, you know, you understand their motivations. And, um, you know, with Cheap, I felt like you could, you understood him. Yeah. And and so even when he is, you know, doing crazy things, you, I understood him. And the other thing that's so striking about on the island with so many of the people is, you know, they're all fallible. And some of them just show remarkable courage and bravery at times and gallantry. And then, you know, another moment, they will do an act of just shocking brutality. And you have to kind of reckon with both sides. That idea, that goal of understanding them, on some level, total understanding is elusive in this case. It's completely elusive. And I think that's also why when we spoke about perfection, perfection is not attainable. You're trying to get as close to the truth as possible, to that idyllic version of a story. And that's what you set out. And you excavate and you dig and you dig and you do stupid things like go to the island and you do everything you can. But at some point, you can only get so close. But it is a success if you get 75% of the way there, if I'm being honest. Well, I think like in this case, part of what seems so challenging to me is that it's hard to even know what the percentage is. Yes, it is true. But what's interesting about this story to me and why the structure is so important, you need to find a way to tell a story that gets you closer to the truth. It is not an arbitrary decision the way you begin and tell a story and the way you have it unfold and who you chose to focus on. You know, you are an author and so you are inevitably shaping a story, just the way they're shaping a story. Mm. You're picking where the entry points are and, and who to focus on. There are a lot of people on that ship. So you are, to some degree, making decisions. But those decisions should be guided by getting you closer to the truth. And what is the truth of this story? The truth is that the truth was elusive and that each one of them is slightly manipulating the story. What's helpful in this case is they agree on the general facts. You know, they agree that somebody right. was shot. They agree they were shipwrecked. They don't actually, for the most part, brazenly lie. But they burnish certain facts and they leave out certain facts in their, each of their accounts so that each of them will emerge better. And that's why you're saying that this last chapter of the story, them fighting over the essential nature of what happened, like the very basic truth in public through these like warring accounts and court martial proceedings, that's what allowed you to get whatever comfort you needed with what was elusive for you too, right? That, that's that's yes, what I hear 100%. you saying. Yes, 100%. Like, I found a structure that was transparent. Right. I found a structure that was completely transparent with the reader. And I even have an acknowledgement say where I leave it up to the reader. I mean, um, an author's note. I'm not, I have an acknowledgement too, but an author's note in the beginning where I kind of say there are, I've sorted through all the warring accounts and dug up all these records, but you ultimately can't completely resolve some of the the, the fractious nature of each account. And I leave it to the reader to, to judge, to form history's judgment, which is what we do. But what is nice is I think if you really read closely the shading of each account, you learn something fundamental about how we tell stories. Mm -hmm. But I also think you get pretty close to what really happened because you see who's leaving stuff out and why. So the reader has to engage with the evidentiary uh, You got to do some math yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'll be so curious to see who readers identify with in the book. Do they identify with Bulkley? Do they identify with Cheap? I don't think that many will identify with Cheap, although I have No felt, one's going to identify with Cheap. Yeah, no one's... I found a few people who are like, well, you know, I, I don't know. I felt so I kind of had a perverse sympathy for Cheap. So, And then, of course, there's Byron. Um, and so they each, though, have bring certain attributes. I mean, Bulkley is a remarkable remarkable figure for that time. I mean, he is somebody, we don't know exactly what his class was, but he was not from the aristocracy. He was from the lower middle class. He rose the gunner of a ship based on his diligence. He was literate. He was very devout. He kind of approached the trip, you know, almost as a way to get closer to God and to his kind of inner self. And then on this island, in this democracy of suffering, he begins to emerge as this kind of commander and leader in his own right. And he ultimately leads one of the more extraordinary castaway voyages ever recorded. I mean, he does what he leads these people in a castaway boat packed so tightly in this little boat they built to get off the island that they can't even move. They can barely stand. And he leads them for over three months, some 3,000 miles. And many of them die, but some of them survive. They'd already been like through everything. You know, before they shipwrecked, they were already like suffering to no end. You keep laughing talking about it, but that is actually like part of my experience too, is just like, you're like, uh, you know, a third of the way through the story and they're already like skin and bones totally fucked and there's like nine more horrible <laughs> things to happen. Yeah, I laugh only because in a weird way when you spend so much time you know, you develop almost a seaman sense of humor or almost like a war correspondent sense of humor because it's so like ridiculous and brutal and and like fate is just so cruel and you almost have to have this almost dark sense of humor because you're like, okay, I just got through the scurvy epidemic. They've thrown totally. half the people overboard. These people have lost their hair. Their teeth have fallen out. Their cartilage in their body seems to be coming unglued and they're roaming, raving mad. And you're like, okay, we got through that. Um, okay, but now they're in a typhoon. How about an earthquake? Yeah, they have an earthquake. I mean, and then they shipwreck. I mean, you're just like, and then they're like castaways on a desolate island where they can find no food. And yet- in your search for the truth, the ever-elusive truth, you felt like you needed to go to this miserable island? I did. There's always that part of you, right, that gnaws at you because that's that elusiveness. How close can I get to this point? I always begin thinking I'm going to just work in archives or in very safe confines that are very suited for my very meek uh, physical attributes for anyone who knows me. Um, but there always comes a point where, or often comes a point where I'm kind of haunted by things I don't know. And so after about two years of doing research, I did, I was kind of gnawed by like, well, what was it like on that island? And why was it so hard to survive? And, you know, why did they turn on each other? Why did it descend into Lord of the Flies? So I found a Chilean captain to take me on the voyage. It took me uh, several days just to get from New York to a Chilaway Island where we departed on what would be a 350-mile journey to Wager Island, which is located in the Gulf of Sorrows, or as some prefer to call it, the Gulf of Pain. And I had seen photographs of the ship, which looked pretty big in the photographs before I got there. And then when I got there, I was like, ooh, there's a little like my squid on her. I was like, I was imagining a Jack Cousteau ship. And I got there and I was like, oh, this vessel's pretty small and top heavy <laughs> and it's heated by a wood stove. And then when I got there, we couldn't even depart. 
because the Coast Guard, it was so stormy, the Coast Guard had closed off the port. I didn't know that actually happened. I thought if you wanted to kill yourself on a boat, you just could go do it. But apparently you can't. Like they just shut down the port because it was so tempestuous, the weather. <laughs> and so we couldn't leave the port. So like one day passed and we're stuck on the boat and then another day passed or something, third day passed. And I was literally like, well, I do have a return flight. Am I ever going to like, I'm starting <laughs> to doubt I'd ever make it to Wager Island. You would think after two years of research, you'd be like, you know what? Let's take it easy. Let's not, yeah, let's not yeah, push yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so we get across the Gulf and we're actually following in reverse the path some of the castaways, the other castaway group had traveled. And at first, so we get across the Gulf. Finally, we get out. We get out at dawn. We slip across. It's pretty rough, but it's okay. Then we get into these channels that are very sheltered. And for, for listeners who've been to Patagonia, I'd never been there before. But so you're kind of in these channels that are sheltered by islands from the ocean. And it's, it's calm. I was like, I've got this. I totally, I just, I'm like, I am so in control of this. It's beautiful. I've hunted squid in a typhoon. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I was like, this is nothing. And I was like, it's cold. Yeah, it was about 30 degrees. It was winter and it was raining or sleeting. But I was like, totally fine, chillingly beautiful. I've got this. And then after several days, the uh, the captain came to me and said, well, if we're going to get to Wager Island, now we have to head out into the open ocean. And so we head out in the open ocean. And that's when I was like, okay. I don't want to curse, but these seas are damn terrifying. Let's just put it that way. I get it. I get it now. Can I go home, Mom? Dad, take me, take me home. And uh, the boat, you know, I think part of it was the boat was just kind of top heavy. It was really built and designed for the channels. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't designed to be in these open oceans. So it was like being in a can like or in a ping pong ball, and you're just getting chucked about. You couldn't stand. You had to sit. I had to sit on the floor for hours at a time, couldn't move. I kept watching, there was a jacket on a hinge and it just kept flopping up and down, up and down. I was getting more and more seasick watching this jacket because it would just float up in the <laughs> air as if like there was no gravity because we would rock so much. Yeah, sounds like and a then like a bilge pump went flying, garbage cans were flying. And I, you know, I'd been on boats before and I'm not like someone who's totally prone to seasickness, but I was like totally ready to puke. And I had like the little patch behind one ear. And then I had taken so much Dramamine, I was like in a half drunken stupor, like half <laughs> like this, just on the floor. And you couldn't eat. So you just sat. And then I, I had to pass the time. So I put on, I had a recording of Moby Dick because I've been reading all Melville for, for my book. So I had an <laughs> you did an audio book of Moby Dick? <laughs> I had an audio book of Moby Dick. So I kind of thought, well, that'll be soon. That's going to help me pass the time because I got to sit here for like 10 hours just being chucked about. And if I keep looking at this jacket, I'm going to totally puke. So I put on Moby Dick and I was like, Okay, this isn't very soothing. <laughs> Retrospect. Yeah, dubious choice. Could I have picked a better book? But it was like the one book I had. It was good. It was long. I was like, it's going to take me through the journey. But I was like, like a history of the New York Knicks, nineteen seventy one, nineteen eighty four. Exactly. You know? I needed yes. I needed like that like weird massage music. You know, <laughs> like yeah. you know, it sounds it sounds like spa, like some fake music. Or like, <laughs> I don't know what I needed. But in any case, so I'm um, so I do that, and uh, you know, thankfully the captain was very skilled. I always felt like he was in command. He instilled confidence. I was just like, I got to get through this, you know, because the waves were just, you know, if you look at the window, you just see water because you're down below. But then he, you know, he got us and we got to the Gulf of Pain and he started to lead us across it. I just need to acknowledge how casually you're like, and then thankfully we got to the Gulf of Pain. <laughs> <laughs> like every well, name like, of everything yeah. in this region I, is like Mount Misery, the Gulf of Pain. Right. 
You know, it's like Island of Desolation, Rocks <laughs> of Deceit. They, they have the worst names, Mount Misery. Yeah, they really, everything is named after some calamity. And speaking of named after some calamity, so we're, we start to pass the, in the Gulf of Pain, we begin our crossing. We cross an area where some of the castaways had tried to row across three times. They across this headland that they ultimately failed to do. And while they were trying to get across the castaways, one of their boats had sank so when we were on our boat, the captain pointed to the chart and he pointed to some islands and he says, oh, that's Smith and that's Hobbs. And then he said some other names. I can't remember, Hurtiford or something. And I was like, God, those are such weird English sounding names for the middle of Patagonia. And I was like, God, they sound kind of familiar. And I had brought with me some of the journals, um, like Byron's journal and some of the other accounts so I could read them uh, during the voyage. And I realized that they were some of these castaways who had been abandoned on these islands and perished because one of the castaway boats had sank and they didn't have any more space for them. So they abandoned these four Marines on the on this island. And the last thing they were recorded as ever saying was, God bless the king. And then of course they undoubtedly died and were never heard from again. And so their, their epitaph is on these islands. That is their only real epitaph. But what's so interesting again about history is most people who go contemporary seamen who pass through there have no idea why. The captain didn't know why they were called that. He right. didn't know the origins. He just knew those were the names on the map. So we go across the Gulf of Pain, and by Wager Island is an island now called Byron Island. And we anchored there for the night between Wager Island and Byron Island. And then we went in a zodiac the next morning at like crack of dawn. I was all bundled up. I had, you know, wool hat. You know, again, it's winter there. It's the time in which they, you know, around the time in which they wrecked and were there. And it was raining or sleeting and it was unrelentingly windy. They always described in their accounts freezing, but I'd always, I was always like, well, when I looked at the temperature, it's about 30, you know, it's not Antarctica, it's not polar. So why are they always saying they're freezing? And then when you get there, you realize it's just that kind of damp cold that gets under your skin and it's windy. And they clearly were all suffering from hypothermia. Like mm -hmm. I just, it just kind of dawned on me like, oh my God, yeah, they would have had hypothermia. They just had some scraps of clothes on which they left the boat with. And a lot of the clothes disintegrated over time. Byron describes having no shoes or anything. And at one point they found a seal, which they had eaten and he made seal boots out of it, out of the skin. And then when they're starving again, he ends up eating the shoes, you know, in his yeah. desperation. And then, you know, you get to the island and you realize, you know, it's just a place of wild desolation. It's barren, it's mountainous, it's windswept. The trees are all bent over at 45 degrees angles. They look as if they're like lying on top of each other. And we could find virtually no food, just the way the castaways had described. We found some celery near there where they had encamped, like they had eaten, but not much more. And there are no animals other than some birds flying around. There were some mussels which they had gotten along the shore, but they had slowly exhausted or gradually exhausted. And so making that trip really helped me to understand why a British officer had described it as a place in which the soul of man dies in him. And right. I was like, okay, I could see why their soul might die in them. But you could suddenly see why in those circumstances, how hard it was. And you could see why they descended into a Lord of the Flies. We won't spoil what the ending is, but did you know when you were standing there that you had your ending? No. No, but then eventually I did. Yes. You said a couple of times that, like, to you the book is about the stories that we tell ourselves and the essential nature of telling a story. 
I know that you think about that question a lot. You and I have talked about it a lot. Yes. Was there something new that you learned about that question from doing this? Or did it, it just allow you to play in that space that you like to play? Did you figure something new out? I did, because even if you're interested in those ideas or themes, I don't think I'd ever come across such an example where you could see it playing out and document it. You could see how each person is trying to document, quite literally documenting their story to shape their story in these very competing ways. Why there's this kind of war over their narratives. And... I think being able to see it was just so instructive. So it's one thing to kind of hypothesize about these questions or think about them on some kind of grand level, but to actually see them on a granular level and you compare the documents and you're like, oh, okay, look what he's leaving out. Oh, look what he's highlighting. And you can really see it. And so for me, it was the, it was the vividness of it, the documentation of it. And of course, the stakes were so high because in their case, they could literally be hanged. So, you know, for me, that was, um, I learned a lot. But then I also learned a lot about history and the war over history and who gets to tell the history. And, you know, one of the things when I saw the way the empire in the end wasn't happy with any of the ver their versions of stories and begins to try to manufacture its own mythic tale, its own alternate version of history, which it wants to pass down. But after Killers of the Flower Moon, I was really deeply interested in why some stories become part of our collective conscious and why some don't. And in that case, you had just a horrific racial injustice and one of the more sinister crimes in American history. And yet so many people outside the Osage Nation had large, and I include myself, had excised it from our conscience. We hadn't been taught it, we hadn't learned it. Or, And so when I was researching this story, I again saw illustrations of that in a very vivid way. And, you know, one of the themes of the book is the, the stories that the British Empire tells and nations tell um, to serve their self-interest and preserve themselves. But I became very haunted by the stories that they don't tell and that they preserve their power. Nations and empires preserve their powers, not only by the stories they tell, but also by the stories they leave out. And in the case of the wager, there was a seaman named John Duck John Duck was a free black seaman on board the wager. He had survived the journey around Cape Horn. He had survived scurvy outbreak. He had survived the typhoon. He then survived the shipwreck. He then survived this unbelievable castaway voyage. But unlike some of the other survivors, he could never record his testimony. And why is that? It was because he was kidnapped and sold into slavery. And there's no record of what happened to him. And so his is one of the stories that is left out of the narrative, that is left out of history, that cannot be told. And I am, you know, we talk about documentation and the truth, but I am as haunted by the stories that can't be told as the stories that can be told. And do you think that haunting is going to continue to inform the choices that you make with how you spend your time and the stories that you tell? I think so. I think inevitably, as you reckon with history and reckon with these stories, and you're more conscious of it, 
you begin to see it and you begin to realize it. I'm giving stuff away or whatever, but it's fine. I mean, things that happen in the book, they're important and I think they're important to share. I end the book with another mutiny, a real mutiny. It's witnessed by a few of the castaways from the wager who are on board a ship going back to Europe. It's a Spanish ship and they're being transported back. And on board that ship were several members of an indigenous group uh, from South America who had been forced into slavery, enslaved by the Spanish and brought on the ship and they have to toil in slavery. There was about 11 or 11 or 12 of them, if my memory serves. And as they're crossing the ocean after a good deal of mistreatment by the Spanish officers, they rebel. They're outnumbered by hundreds on that ship. And through desperation and unbelievable courage and bravery, they managed to seize control of the ship. I mean, I cannot underemphasize just how astonishing that is to take command of a warship when they had about 11 people that was filled with hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds, yeah, of Spanish seamen and officers and soldiers. And they hold the ship for a long period of time on the quarter deck. But eventually, um, a Spaniard shoots the leader of the rebellion, and the other men decide to plunge into the sea. They jump overboard into the sea, choosing to drown rather than to remain as slaves. And to me, that got at these kind of fundamental power dynamics, these systematic injustices. But that's also another story that can't really be told. Mm. You don't know much about those people. We don't have the records to tell them. And that's another part of the history, these other kind of mutinies and rebellions against these systematic injustices that are left out of the history books. Do you feel a responsibility to tell those stories? Do you feel energized to tell those stories? I think is you it? have a moral obligation. Look, we, we, get into, we get into these professions for strange reasons, but, you know, you're interested, you're curious. You know, it sounds, you know, silly when you say it, but I think you have some crusading streak or some kind of moral lodestar, you know, that is driving you and pursuing you to tell these stories because you're trying to illuminate something and make sense of the world for yourself and hopefully for others. And so when you come across these stories that are left out, I think you feel a moral obligation to try to tell them. And I was probably oblivious to a lot of this when I was younger, you know, but as you do more, I'm old now, <laughs> I'm an old, I'm old. So I, you know, as you do more and you come across stories, you become much more aware of the dimensions of a story that can't be told and the dimensions of history that are left out. I was haunted by that after Killers of the Flower Moon and I was haunted by that after working on The Wager. You're older, sure. But I do wonder whether part of that urge, part of that moral obligation is also the kind of like vastness of choice that you, David Grant, have at this time in your career. I mean, you can write about whatever you want, right? <laughs> you know, I don't know if I can write about whatever I want, but I, I'm able to spend time on stories now, which I couldn't for much, you know, or I did, but, you know. <laughs> you got I'm yelled at for it. 
<laughs> yeah, I got, I was always in trouble and I was always, you know, people are looking at me, you know, am I ever going to get paid, you know, so I could put some food on the table. And so I'm, you know, been doing it long enough that I am afforded now the luxury of more time. And I think that's the real difference. I think that's the real difference. Of course, early in my career, I didn't have any choice. I just did whatever stories were assigned to me. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and you did what you had to do when you were constantly hustling. Well, I mean, I guess like what I'm asking is if the force behind that moral obligation feels more intense to you now than it has previously, is that simply a byproduct of learning more of your relationship to the stories that get told and don't get told deepening? Or is it also connected in some way to the amount of discretion you have over the stories that you tell? question. I don't know if I know the answer. I think the first part I think is the more important mm-hmm. that I am a generalist and I go into every story just acknowledging my ignorance. I I am not afraid to just admit I'm, there's a great line in Margin Call. I don't know if people have seen the movie, but it's one of my favorite lines. It's Jeremy Irons. Is, I won't get into the story, but at one point he just says, you know, when he realizes his whole company has been completely leveraged on these um, subprime mortgages and his company's about to go bankrupt. And it's the young quants have identified the insanity of what this company has done. And he says to the young quants, he says, you know, just speak to me like, uh, you know, I'm a young child or like a golden retriever. <laughs> and, and I I often, when I go into a story, I always think that I'm like, yes, just speak to me like I'm a young child or a golden retriever. <laughs> um, and so you learn. And, you know, I think, you know, you know, writing uh, can be hard. I mean, you know, I think for some people it's easy, but for me it's hard. It's, you know, it, they, they take a lot of time and I'm always stressed and I always worry that I'm messing up and, you know, um, and, and that never goes away that, that, you know, well, at least for me, it never goes away. Um, but there's also great rewards and the great rewards is this, is the education. I mean, I could go on a ship right now and tell you like every part of a ship. I could tell you how a ship was built from the inside out. You could tell me everything about going on a ship except what audiobook to listen to. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't recommend Melville for, for a tough voyage. But and, and then one of the things you begin to learn and you just get a better, you know, with each story I work on, I have a better understanding of the challenges, the difficulty, the elusiveness of truth, the zealousness that's needed to, to chase it my own fallibilities, revelations about human nature, revelations about brutality, revelations about systems of injustice, revelations about racism, which is another big part of the wager. You know, they're on an imperial mission where supposedly they're supposed to be proselytizing and spreading, you know, this notion that the British empire was somehow justified, you know, based on this claim that its civilization was superior to others, which is shown to be absurd in this case, as their officers behave less like gentlemen than like brutes on the on the island. And so I'm always learning. I learn more about stories. I learn more about the way we tell stories. I learn more about the parts of stories that are left out that can't be chased. I'm much more like, for example, early in my career, if I came across the silences in a story, I might not have highlighted them. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, there's nothing to tell there. And now I try to let the silences speak. Is that just a product of getting more comfortable with that elusiveness? I think it's it's just learning. I think it's just experiential. I mean, I'm you know, when I think if you stop learning, then you really that's when you need to 
hang it up. You know, my beliefs and assumptions are challenged every time I begin a story and like what my notion of a story is, what I might think the story will be. It's completely challenged. And so for me, those revelations are instructive and you carry them with you into the next project you work on. You inevitably do. You inevitably do. Whether it's conscious or not, you inevitably do. Do you know what your next thing is? I do not. This is the worst stage. There are bad, there, this is the worst stage than when you don't know whether you'll ever be able to make sense of British documents. The worst stage is when you have no squid to hunt and you're just like sitting there going, oh my God, and you're like restless and you're you're thinking like, how do I find a story? How, do, how does one find a story? Like, how I don't know, man. You seem, you seem pretty good to me. It, it's it's hard, man. It is finding the story is so hard. So uh, if any listeners, you know, DMs are open. Email me, please. <laughs> I will take you to the nicest dinner. <laughs> I got one more question for you before we go, which is what I meant to ask last time. Uh oh. But now it's an even better question, which is uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, coming out as a movie in October, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. The wager already been optioned by the same pair, Scorsese directing, DiCaprio starring. This is like a trifecta thing now. You know, I like of all the things one would ever expect to happen, you know, you like just like Cheap and Byron and all these people, I think every writer has some, you know, their secret ambitions and dreams. That was one that was never even like, I never even thought of. Like, you're just like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I feel pretty, obviously I feel very fortunate, you know, in part because I don't know anything about movies. Like, I mean, I love movies. I watch them. I try to help people developing projects with my research. I'm always open. I share, I speak to them whenever they need me, but I don't want to make movies and it's not my thing. I mean, I'm so consumed with like spending time in archives and trying to use words to convey images rather than, you know, images to convey them. And so my hope is always to get these projects into the hands of people who know what they're doing. And, you know, it's unbelievable that someone like Scorsese and DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone and De Niro, all these people have worked on Killers of the Flower Moon. And for me, you know, I want to get it into the hands of people who not only know what they're doing, but share the same fierce commitment to the story. Doesn't mean it's going to be an exact replica of a book. It can't be. It's a different medium. I would never expect that to be. It shouldn't be. But they need that fierce commitment. They need that sense of compulsion to, to try to tell the story and to do the story justice. And in the case of Killers of the Flower Moon, it was amazing to me early on how much Scorsese and his team began to work with members of the Osage Nation, the Osage Chief and Poitin uh, movie ambassadors to work with the, the production team. Um, they persuaded and, and lobbied to get them to film on location, which they did, which I don't think is done too often anymore with movies of this sort where they filmed on location in Osage territory. There are Osage actors. I got to witness a scene where some of my Osage friends were, you know, you know, they're not, they weren't actors before, to the best of my knowledge. Like, when was a lawyer? And they, <laughs> you know, and they play, and they're, and they were unbelievable. And um, 
And then, you know, from the costume design to the shaping of the story, um, they use the Osage language, which is something I know that the Osage chief, uh, Jeff Standing Bear, has been like, a, you know, something that's been so important to the Osage to revive their language. It has a great number of Native American actors, including Lily Gladstone, who plays Molly Burkhardt, who I think is, is really remarkable. So, you know, you see all that and you see the research they did on their own. So the fact that they then wanted to team up on the wager, I was like, oh, sure, <laughs> whatever you want, go right <laughs> yeah, ahead, uh, whatever you want. And then I, I'll just say one other thing is that, you know, I joke that like, and it's joke, but it's kind of true. Like for two days, my kids will think I'm cool. And for anyone who has children who are teenagers, you know, that's not a small thing. Most of the time, I'm just a nerdy writer who spends his time half blind <laughs> looking at archives, usually with a magnifying glass. And they're like, oh God, my dad is such a dork. And then, you know, for two days of, uh, you know, if a movie comes out, they'll be like, oh wow, dad's cool. <laughs> so I'll take that. But on a more serious level, for example, Killers of the Flower Moon, my, you know, my hope with telling that story was to hopefully, you know, fill in some of the ignorance of my own ignorance that existed around this really important part of history. And I'm not naive. While I am a book writer, I, I know that a book can only reach so many people and a movie can reach even more. So the idea that this story will reverberate and spread and then mm. hopefully it will lead people to keep learning because as I think we've spoken about, I don't believe in definitive accounts. I think we learn with new perspectives, with new information. Hopefully someone, maybe they'll watch the movie, then maybe they'll read the book, maybe they'll go to the Osage Nation, maybe they'll go to the museum, maybe they'll learn about Osage language. And that's the way knowledge grows. So what I hear you saying is um, it does fit with this moral obligation that you feel. Yeah, I care about these stories, I really do. You know, and um, and that is, you know, the best part about it. That really is the best part about it. Because most of my time, I'm just back in the archives being a dork. <laughs> and I recognize that. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> you seem fine with a lot of stuff. This is Zend Out Grand. <laughs> this is Zend Out Grand. I'm old now. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, we started when we started out. How old? When was that? 2012. 2012. Yeah, so. I'm older now. <laughs> I don't know. You seem zenned out from the last time we talked. <laughs> good. All right. Good. I'm making progress. <laughs> Man, thank you for doing this again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to her. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to David Gran. The new book is called The Wager. You should read it. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout listening. 
your life just got a lot easier.